0: With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this
1: is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello everyone, welcome to Double Stint, trackside at Daytona, second edition of our special daily podcast here for the 2020 Rolex 24 at Daytona. Ryan Marine, John DeGeese and Dan Lloyd will be with you here on this episode ...of the podcast. We are recording right now at about 10 until 8 o'clock on, uh, what day is it, Thursday, Thursday evening. Uh, so that means that night practice is going as we speak. Qualifying happened a little bit earlier today, and guys, I think that's the perfect place to start, although there is some news to get to as well from today. But John, looking at uh, at the prototype results in qualifying, you, you can certainly look at the results, and that is definitely one story looking at who's on the pole, but the big story might be the accident for Ricky Taylor and Acura Team Penske.
0: Yeah, Acura Team Penske was leading the time charts earlier in the day. They seemed to have the pace, what appeared to be, but when it came to qualifying, I think the Mazdas showed Supreme, um, Ali Jarvis scoring pole for the second consecutive year, but it was not beating his record-setting time from last year. Like you said, I think the story of the day could have been from Ricky Taylor's accident over the curbs, a heavy heavy, violent accident for the number seven Acura Team Penske uh, entry in the bus stop chicane. Luckily, uh, Ricky's okay. He, he walked out. I spoke to him. Um, he was sort of nursing his left uh, uh, wrist a little bit, but I think everything's fine. He explained that it was his mistake. He was just pushing so much because he feels that they're at such a deficit right now to the Mazdas that they're basically full-on attack mode to try to just keep the pace to the Mazdas and um, Interesting for sure because we sort of seen an ebb and flow between the two manufacturers throughout the season last year. We had a pre-race the BO, pre-event BOP adjustment to the Acura where it lost roughly seven horsepower, and it seems to be that the, the Team Penske squad is sort of in catch-up mode right now, especially now after this accident.
1: Yeah, definitely. So we'll see. It's uh, still to be determined if they'll be on track later tonight. The expectation is that they certainly will be by tomorrow, but a big setback for Accurate Team Penske for sure. Should mention as well, LMP2 saw Ben Keating really impressed in qualifying. He grabbed the class pole there. He's going to be pulling double duty between uh, two cars, and so remarkable to see what he's been able to do already this weekend.
0: Absolutely, he said he was. You know, it was took a, quite a lot for him to get that lap in the PR1 Matheson Motorsports uh, Orica. He coined the bus stop chicane as the Bermuda Triangle of the Daytona International Speedway and sort of sent his regrets to Ricky for having that accident there. He fully understood how difficult it is to get through that part of the track unscathed. Um, We had some damp conditions earlier this morning. The first session was a bit in the rain. It it was strange. Um, The conditions haven't been really ideal this weekend. It's been a little warmer today than yesterday, thankfully. But um, definitely we've had some accidents that have caught some drivers out. But um, great for Ben to get pull. He's pulling double duty this weekend. Um, he talked about his new fancy Timex stopwatch he bought at Walmart last night to, to, to calculate the drive times to make sure he doesn't go over the, the four- and six-hour rule where you're not allowed to drive four hours more than four hours in a six-hour period. Um, he has to complete minimum drive time both in the PR1 Matheson car and um, the Riley Motorsports AMG in, in GT Daytona. So he's going to be a busy guy in the race.
1: Busy indeed, and certainly a good thing he's about as fitted as- as they come for someone his age and his, continues to show remarkable pace. Moving to the GT categories, Dan, it was really an all-Porsche show. GTLM, a 1-2 there, and we saw the, the FAF Porsche on pole in GTD. Just a, an impressive showing from Porsche, specifically surrounding GTLM, where we're seeing this version of the RSR at a, in a race weekend for the first time in IMSA.
2: Yeah, it was a remarkably similar situation to what we saw last year, despite Porsche coming in with a new car, it's going to be making its 24-hour race debut this weekend. Uh, it, it was the same as what we had 12 months ago, Nick Tandy on pole um, in the number 911, uh, and it was just a superb lap from the Brit, but I think what was more significant was that Porsche managed to get a front row lockout. Um, the, the 911's looking very, very strong out there on pace. Um, also impressive, though, the two Chevrolet Corvette C8Rs uh, racing for the first, time this weekend i think everyone's expecting them to be a competitive proposition there's been so much development work going behind that car um, lap after lap after lap they've been pounding around for a long time and they're very they're ready for this race um, but it, so it was interesting to see them uh, up there in third and fourth with a good grid spot um maybe challenging on the first lap but certainly it's it's a good place for them to be um and uh, bmw Perhaps not having the session that they would have wanted to have, um, slotting in behind the two Corvettes, uh, but Ferrari as well, um, really off the pace, over a second down the Ricci Competizione car. So um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if there, if what changes have to be made there from the Risi camp. Obviously, coming off the back of an emphatic Petit Le Mans win. Can they do it again in the 24 hours of Daytona? Qualifying pace suggests no, but uh, that that is a very strong team. So we'll see how it pans out. GTLM at the moment, though, Porsche staking its claim early on.
1: And again, same can be said in GT Daytona. It's such a stacked grid in GTD once again this year. But, Dan, we were talking about this just a few moments ago, even before we started recording. This FAF lineup is one that you just look at the names involved and you say, if the team is ready, if the BOP is good, There's no reason this wouldn't be one of the heavy favorites, and they've shown what they're made of. They they flexed their muscle here early on.
2: Yeah, to be to be five tenths of a second, to be half a second up at the top of the timing charts in GT Daytona in that uh, 18-car field. which dropped down to 17 cars. Actually, we lost a car for qualifying, but it, it was an extraordinary performance. Um, Zachary Robichon is, was a revelation last year to win the Sprint Cup, um, and he is a real strong aspect of that lineup, which includes three highly rated Porsche drivers in Dennis Olsen, Lars Kern, and Patrick Pilet. So it's an absolutely stacked lineup, and for Robichon, who is technically the lowest rated of those four drivers, to do such a lap, to get that half second over the next car, um, quite incredible, really. And uh, yeah, certainly. certainly. Certainly, people are going to be looking at FAF as as one of the favorites for this race.
1: So, you mentioned that we were down a car in qualifying in GTD. That, of course, was the Black Swan Racing Porsche. Unfortunate, once again, for this team, which seems to be kind of snake bitten if you go back the last uh, 12 months or so with some of the incidents that they've had. And, And they've been big ones. This one was no exception, Dan. What did, first of all, if you could explain the accident and then the implications in what the team is doing just to stay on the grid?
2: So yeah, it's been a long day for Black Swan and and it's a team that has had a fair few setbacks over the last year or so and uh, probably didn't need this to happen right now. Um, Essentially what happened was Trenton Estep, the young young American driver in that car, uh, he had an accident in first practice session uh, this morning. Uh, As John said earlier, it was a bit damp, the conditions a bit tricky. Estep spun around at turn one, hit the outside of the pit wall looping around, hit it front end on uh, and that... Basically, put paid to that chassis which Black Swan used uh, in in last year's race, um, and and essentially set the team in a race against time to get some kind of solution, i.e., a spare chassis in place uh, for for the rest of the weekend. Uh, we spoke to Pappas at the start of the day, uh, just after the accident, to see what might be available, and he said, you know, we're going to look at look at all options, um, maybe having to bring a new chassis in. Um, he wasn't writing it writing it off completely writing the entry off but it was certainly a bit touch and go uh, and we caught up with Tim just before the start of this session that's going on now and, and uh, fortunately Black Swan has managed to source a replacement chassis with a bit of help from uh, their rival essentially Wright motorsports um, a nice bit of uh, camaraderie there the Porsche camp Porsche guys helping each other out we had a similar story earlier in the week with two Lamborghini teams helping each other out um, so it looks as though Black Swan uh, gonna it might be a, a long night for the mechanics there uh, setting up the the replacement chassis putting some of their internal Parts into this new car, um, but the intention that Papa said was that the car's going to be out for practice tomorrow morning, which would be uh, great to see.
1: And uh, a really remarkable achievement if they're able to do that. Well, we'll have to wait and see, of course, but uh, that's the latest on that developing story. And speaking of developing stories, maybe the biggest news story that we're all keeping our eyes on here at Daytona, we spoke about it yesterday the potential for maybe that announcement we've been waiting for to give us some clarity on the future of prototype racing, not just in IMSA, but globally as well. And, John, we got an email this afternoon, both from the ACO and from IMSA, saying there's going to be a joint press conference at some point tomorrow. Of course, all minds immediately jump to Convergence Talks. I think there's every reason to believe that will be the subject of this press conference. It's at, I think, 1145 local time tomorrow. When we show up, John, what do you expect to hear? What do you expect to learn from the, uh, the powers that be that will be in attendance?
0: We're fully expecting a convergence announcement, like you said, Ryan. Um, uh, Jim France, the, the chairman of IMSA, will be joined by Pierre Fion, the ACO president, where we're um, fully expecting them to announce that DPIs will be eligible at Le Mans and hypercars could potentially be eligible at Daytona and Sebring and vice versa. Um, creating a convergence in top-class prototype regulations. Um, it's our understanding that it'll that technical details probably won't be revealed during this. Um, we're still waiting on a lot of confirmation and, and details to come on the the DPI front for 2022. Um, it's looking that there's still some things to be decided. There's been some delays in those regulations because of these convergence talks and the work that IMSA and, and the ACO technical departments have been doing for the last several months, I would say in upwards of the last six months, on trying to make this a reality. And um, I think tomorrow is going to be a big day for sports car racing when this is formally announced and and formally communicated that the plan of the plan to have a single category that will allow the best of both worlds to compete however they may be, most likely via a BOP system to start with, but hopefully a vision of a complete common platform in the years to come.
1: To say this is much anticipated from the media standpoint, I think would be an understatement, but maybe the group that's more interested in hearing what's going to come out tomorrow is the manufacturers. I suspect the room is going to be full of manufacturer reps, and the ones who aren't here are going to be listening in or looking for quotes as soon as possible Do you get the sense that they're also waiting like we are to hear what's going to be announced, or is there a chance that they have some notion about what might be coming?
0: The last manufacturers meeting, um, all the manufacturer representatives in attendance were forced to sign NDAs. Hmm. So that's a sign that point that I think that a lot of people knew what was coming. And just when those bulletins came in, uh, the media advisories came in from the ACO and uh, IMSA, just to walk around the paddock and, and seeing some of the manufacturer reps in a in attendance, you could see the smiles on their faces. And I think when that bulletin came in, in in the email, that was kind of the reality that this is really happening. And you could see the sigh of relief from some people's faces. You can see that, okay, this is, this is it. And we're going to be making this work. So um, it's really exciting times for sports car racing. I I don't think it's right for us to speculate exactly what it's going to look like. Um, There's been a lot of talk of what the technical regs could be, but I think the biggest thing is that the ACO and IMSA appeared to be on common terms and, We haven't had anything like this in quite some time.
1: No, and I'm of the opinion that if this is done correctly, this could be a huge game changer for the sport. It could be the one thing, really, that the sport has been missing over the years. But there's still a lot of details that need to be ironed out, how all of this is going to work together. We're probably not going to get a ton of direction on that tomorrow, but I'm looking forward to tomorrow's podcast. When we'll have some information, we'll be able to provide some analysis for that to you tomorrow, but I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that this could be a massive day tomorrow for sports car racing moving forward, if things pan out the way that that we all hope that they do. So, with all that said, we do have a couple of questions that came in after last night's show. Uh, one of them, actually, more of a comment, and it plays off of what we were just talking about, saying that... In the opinion of Sutt, who wrote in, the perfect stage for prototype convergence announcement would be more appropriate or more likely, perhaps, according to Sutt, at the uh, Super Sebring weekend. And there's some truth to that, because that truly is the epitome of this cooperation between the ACO and IMSA. I suspect that we'll have a preliminary announcement tomorrow and then perhaps that is the scene at Seabring, John, for greater information to be revealed.
0: Yeah, I would expect the technical regulations for the DPI side of things to be revealed at Seabring. I'm um, talking to John Doonan, the new president of IMSA back at the Roar, he indicated that, you know, Q one is still the the goal to release the regulations and q1 is january february march so we're headed right there sebring time march i think that gives both sides to sort of work out the details to figure out what exactly dpi 2022 will be or whatever it'll be called or however it interacts with the, the two different Lama hypercar platforms that'll be converged in in whatever way we'll probably find out a little more tomorrow with um, also time is of an essence i think they had to put this out tomorrow because manufacturers live by days in order to have programs being confirmed and we know of multiple manufacturers that are quote ready to commit if this is a global prototype platform we know mclaren Um, ford has always made that statement Um, porsche is a definitely one an interesting party Um, lamborghini we're not quite quite sure about right now but um, mclaren you know, So I think it's important to get the news out as soon as possible that this is the intent, this is the way to move forward. So um, having that announcement here is why I think it's very important to, to do it now.
1: A couple of other questions that came in. The first from Masked Cosmo who says, To make night racing more TV friendly, do you think that well-lit tracks like Daytona or Bahrain could ever run without the cars? running their nighttime headlights. This would be to address the issue of headlights flashing on the TV screen. I think we've had questions about that before. It's an interesting point. Certainly I agree that it it does make it challenging from a TV viewer's perspective sometimes with just all those lights coming right at you into your living room. I see this, though, as something that the sanctioning bodies would say, for safety's sake, the lights should always be on, and I have a hard time seeing anybody ever budging from that stance.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with you, Ryan. Um, even just going out right now during the nighttime session, taking some photos, yeah, the lights do get in your way, and it's quite interesting. In the, in the last couple of years, they've evolved where all the GT cars used to be yellow-tinted lights, and now the GTLMs actually have um, clearer lights like the prototypes. So it's a little difficult, actually, differentiating some of the cars on track. I know that's not your exact question there, but... Um, point being, safety is a priority, and I think the lights have to stay on, even at, a, even at a brightly lit track as Daytona.
1: It's an interesting point, though, and thanks for writing in. And finally, a couple of questions from Tarek are The first one, we have five brands in GTE racing, but only one competes in the two major championships. America is a huge road cars market for both Ferrari and Aston Martin, yet they skip IMSA. And the same for Corvette and BMW, iconic brands not racing in a true world championship. Is it difficult to have semi-works teams in GTE Pro and GTLM, a la Risi Competizione? I think the answer is clearly yes, or else we would see a team like Risi more. Um, That's just my thought. How about you, Dan?
2: This type of racing, this type of class, the, the the top level of GT racing, if you will, is just it's such an expensive thing to do, and especially for teams that don't have full works backing, um, to be able to put the put the kinds of money together that's required of them is just it, it's incredibly difficult, um, and also it, it it's very difficult to compete with these full works teams because they have such great armament. Behind them, they've got these, you know, the best the, the best, menu, the best uh, engineers who have probably worked on the development of that very car. And to come in as a customer or a semi works team and compete against that is probably one of the most challenging things you can do as a GT outfit. So um, you've got to admire like a, a team like Rizzi Competizione, which comes in. Obviously, it does receive a fair amount of support from Ferrari, but um, perhaps it wasn't, you know, it wasn't there at at the start, as you could say, like Corvette Racing might have been. So um, it, it's just such a challenging environment. To to race in Um, but fortunately that's why we have something like gt3 and gt daytona class which uh, is such a high level and and enables these teams to be able to compete with um, elements of factory support and with works drivers so um, yeah it's uh, it's it's a tough environment for racing even for the full factory efforts
1: Second question from Tarek, is it just me, he says, or is the 12 Hours of Sebring more popular for sports car fans outside of North America than the Rolex 24 at Daytona? He says maybe for the ALMS years, I would say it's probably the Grand Am years, right, where that link between Europe and the U.S. was severed. You didn't see as many of the teams, especially prototype teams, coming over because the DP category was unique to North America. And it, it seems like that that bridge is being rebuilt, John. But to me, if you're looking for a reason why that's the case today, that that to me is what stands out.
0: Yeah, and I think in three or four years that could very well change yeah. by looking at the the landscape of the regulations that are evolving right now. So hopefully that changes. Um, I, I think this race from from a global standpoint has always been more important. I think. Um, You know, looking back in the history, I I think, you know, the Rolex 24, being a 24-hour race stands by itself, no disrespect to Sebring, but I think the ALMS era made Sebring really rise to the front because of the international entries, and now we're getting to the point where global convergence is happening, and we will have more eligibility here in the top classes, and I I think that could be only a good sign for, for this race in the future.
1: Oh, an awesome batch of questions. So to those of you listening tonight, if you have a question for us for our next show, you can leave them in the comments section of uh, this particular podcast at sportscar365.com or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. Quickly looking ahead to what's going to happen tomorrow. We've got more WeatherTech practice tomorrow. Also, of course, the BMW Endurance Challenge, the four-hour season opener for the Michelin Pilot Challenge will be tomorrow that race tends to be a a fun one so looking forward to that and uh, we'll also have that crucial meeting as we've discussed the crucial press conference with the folks from the aco and imsa hopefully we believe giving us an idea about uh, the future of prototype racing so a whole lot for us to cover on the show tomorrow we hope you join us for that but for now for john and dan i'm ryan so long talk to you tomorrow with our next edition of double stint trackside at daytona